May I now request the Director General of All India Radio, Shri Shashikant Kapoor, to give his welcome address. Director General Shri Kapoor. This is All India Radio Archives recording. Shri Abid Hussain Sahib, Sati Sahib, Mr. P.C. Chatterjee, ladies and gentlemen. I am happy to welcome all of you to this year's Sadar Patel Memorial Lecture. Sadar Patel was a frontline freedom fighter and one of the architects of United India. He was also the first minister for information and broadcasting for independent India. To honor him, All India Radio instituted these lectures in 1955. The first lecture was delivered by Shri Raj Kupalachari. Thereafter, every year, eminent Indians from different fields of human knowledge and activity have participated in this annual and prestigious event of All India Radio. Our speaker this evening is Abid Hussain Sahib, and the subject chosen by him is Vision of a Good Society. Abid Hussain Sahib does not need any introduction. He's been a distinguished administrator. He's been a diplomat as our ambassador in the United States. He's represented us at the United Nations many times. And at present, he is the vice chairman of the Rajiv Gandhi Institute for Contemporary Studies at the Rajiv Gandhi Foundation. It's a happy coincidence that the subject chosen by Abid Sahib is vision of a good society. It's a fitting tribute to Sardar Patel, whose mission was to achieve a united and vibrant India. I once again welcome all of you to this evening's lecture. And may I now request Abid Sahib to deliver his lecture. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Sate and friends, I deem it a great privilege to have been invited to deliver this year's Sardar Vallabhai Patel Memorial Lecture. Sardar Patel was the main architect of India's unity. He had a vision to make India a strong and an integrated nation. He knew that if India was to be kept united and peaceful, it had to develop a strong polity with a true sense of unity and fellowship. Through his forceful negotiation capacities and with the moral fortitude to act boldly, he brought about the administrative unity of this country, an essential base for building up a strong India. Sardar was a man of few words, but had an iron will and an indomitable spread. He pursued the question of unity and integration of the country with a single-minded determination. He moved events vigorously to shape them towards the desired end. He brought together the many princely states of India 
and merged them with the Indian Union, subordinating the separatist cravings of their rulers to the larger interests of India as a whole. It is ironic that at a time when India can boast of a resilience in its economy and when its politics has been effectively democratized, some of the cohesiveness in uniting factors of India developed over generations with so much of effort and imagination seem to be getting weakened, running the grave risk of sliding into sub-regional, communal and caste conflicts resulting all too often in the violation in the fundamental standards of human decency. We should drastically reverse this trend, for it would otherwise adversely alter the prospects of our unity, security and progress. Its dramatic reversal will be the best tribute that we could pay to the memory of Sardar Vallabhai Patel. I could think of no better way of paying my homage to him than by sharing a few thoughts with you on the subject of the vision of a good society which can contribute towards keeping India united and civilized. For the unity that Sardar helped to achieve cannot be seen as an isolated goal, but something we can retain by the pursuit of other civilizational values. In this lecture, I'll speak about these features of a civilized society that must underlie our unity. The basic common features of a good society, to my mind, include, among others, five attributes. One, maintenance of peace and harmony. Two, achievement of material well-being. Three, enhancing justice and equality. Fourth, enrichment of community life with a sense of shared identity. And fifth, commitment to rationality. It is indeed quite likely that different societies would put varying emphasis on these ideals, but one would be hard-pressed to point out an aggression of people who would abrogate these ideals out of their individual social lives altogether. These ideals, in fact, speak of the worth of all humanity. Let me now dilate on peace and harmony. Peace is vital to the cause of mankind. All people everywhere want peace. They do not adore war and or love violence. This obviously does not mean that they will always accept peace of any kind at any cost. A just peace cannot be an imposed peace. Sometimes peace is a regressive and passive state of affairs eroding all moral dividing lines. In the face of injustice and tyranny, people will opt out of an imposed peace. Peace is not a subterfuge to continue the domination of the powerful. It is not a sheep submission to oppression or a consent to be led like a lamb to the slaughterhouse. Indeed, virtually all traditions enjoin us to demolish an unjust and tyrannical order. One cannot allow the tyrant to prevail. That said, we all want peace. It is the basis for the enjoyment of every other value in the good life. A question then arises as to what is it that gives us a lasting peace 
whether within or between the nations. If we examine the issue deeply, we'll find that it is the habit of tolerance and respect for diverse points of view that brings peace. I know that for some tolerance is a bad word, loaded with seeds of discord and alienation leading to ruptures. It signifies the act of putting up with something even if one finds it distasteful and unacceptable, inculcating an attitude of non-engagement. In this sense, tolerance is a pallet caricature, and I would venture a form of moral isolation or aloofness because it's a withdrawal from dealing with others. However, tolerance is more than putting up with something which is distasteful. It is not just passive coexistence without violence. It is just not a sterile separateness, but fruitful togetherness, enriching cooperation. It is accepting the diversity of the world as something to be celebrated and not shunned, not even as something to be accepted reluctantly. In the most profound sense, it is an engagement not only with others, but also with oneself. In the face of something distasteful, the truly tolerant person is one who asks, why is it distasteful? True tolerance is in the first place a self-questioning. Why does one find a practice or a viewpoint or a custom distasteful? What does the feeling of the distaste say about one's own values and preferences? Tolerance is based then on a reasoned inquiry into the validity of one's own likes and dislikes. It is not enough simply to say, I find this habit of belief distasteful, but I shall accept it. It is the ability to overcome the blindness and deafness to see or listen to people who hold the different viewpoints and to question one's own. The second necessary attribute of tolerance is to go further and to ask, why is the other person or group or community or nation behaving the way it is? What values or ideas do they hold which has led them to do and say certain things which I find distasteful and offensive? In other words, true tolerance rests on a real attempt to comprehend others, to understand their worldviews, their motives and intentions. As I begin to comprehend them, I may well begin to find their ideas and actions less objectionable. I should see at least that what they are doing and saying is not arbitrary or irrational or malicious, but consistent with the traditions and mores. Surely nobody is exempt from the requirement of logical rationality. But people live their lives in situations already structured for them by others. One cannot rob life of this human condition, which lends life its many diversities and accounts for contradictions. You have to think of them with compassion and with gentleness. After all this, it may be that I still find the ideas or practices in question distasteful. But now I am in a position to begin the third movement of an act of true tolerance. I can now initiate a real meaningful dialogue, interaction with others as part of an attempt to bridge differences and combat the legacy of intolerance.
having turned in word to question my own values and beliefs, having then made an attempt to comprehend the other's point of view, I am in a position to awaken the same curiosity in others to do the same. Every tradition has its own doctrines and systems of tolerance. I think if one were to investigate the matter thoroughly, one would find that they would be in agreement with the three-part argument I have made here. Self-questioning, even self-criticism, comprehension of the other, or what might be called empathy and dialogue. This is a worthy notion of tolerance, and it is one that we in India, with our many religions, communities, castes, sects, and groups, have a history of practicing. It is a fact corroborated by our history that in the Indian subcontinent for centuries, men and movements laid the foundation for interaction and communication between various religious communities. More than two million ago, Emperor Ashoka evoked a liberal version and carved it on a rock. In these words, one should honor another man's sect. For by doing so, one increases the influence of one's own sect and benefits that of other men's. While by doing otherwise, one diminishes the influence of one's own sect and harms the other man's. In the medieval centuries, the classic tradition of religious tolerance in India was powerfully reiterated by the Bhakti saints, who subscribed to the principles of tolerance, leading to a harmonizing process which sprang from needed articulation, explanation, and reconciliation. The Bhakti movement emerged in India when people were lost in dogmatic controversies, when religious people became sectarian and exclusive. It called upon people to look upon all human beings as kindred, belonging to one family. In the Islamic communities of India, the liberal tradition was echoed by Sufi saints. Sufis began to come to India from far away places around the 11th century AD and made India their home. One of the first to arrive in our country, Khaja Moinuddin Chishti, remains as one of the most loved and respected by people of different persuasions. It was their humanistic philosophy which wove the social fabric of our country and defined the basis for day-to-day -day interaction among people. They regarded all the human beings belonging to whatever belief and in living whichever part of the world as the creation of one God and as such worthy of one's love and respect. Loving the creation was one of the most important ways of expressing one's love for the Creator. They helped evolve a synthesis of ideas, values, and idioms, which metamorphosed religious philosophies, which had taken birth in diverse social circumstances, into a set of values which was conducive to the social environment of the subcontinent. Dara Shiko translated Upanishads, and wrote a book called The Beating of the Two Oceans of Sufism and Vedantism. He propounded that these two philosophies revealed the same aspects, an emphasis on the transcendental remoteness of the divine, as well as the loving intimacy of the supreme, and that all men of any disposition are a potential candidate for the divine status. Figures like those of Guru Nanak and Kabir 
epitomizing the blend of ethos and values, became part of India's folklore. The name of Guru Nanak evoked deep respect and reverence among the common men of India, who sung for centuries, Baba Nanak, Sant Fakir, Hindu Ka Guru, Muslim Ka Peer. Kabir linked Hinduism and Islam in a deep relationship of respect and understanding and thereby enabled a powerful coming together of these two communities. Kabir put it thus, God asking the devotee, O Sevak, where does thou seek me? Lo, I am beside thee. I am neither in the temple nor in a mosque. I am neither in Kaaba nor in Kailash. O Sadhu, God is the breath of all breath. The love, reverence and popularity of these holy men has remained as fresh as ever in the, height, in the hearts and minds of common Indian people, irrespective of religion, caste or sect. These have stood the test of time and proved their worth. Their gospel of tolerance, love and understanding brought peace to people, triggered off a wave of creativity which enriched the society and filled the hearts with contentment and joy. What is important to remember in this context is that the synthesis of value system evolved by the Bhakti and Sufi movements was not at the expense of the basic tenets of Hinduism or Islam. People belonging to these communities continued to observe their fundamental religious precepts independent of any social or political obstacles. What these movements taught Hindus and Muslims was that it was possible to interact with each other, to live together peacefully, to learn from each other, to enjoy life to its full, to contribute to social life together without abandoning one's faith. Poet Mir Takimir has expressed this thought eloquently in a beautiful couplet thus, Uske faroge husn se jamke hai sab noor, Uske firoke husn se jamke hai sab noor, Shame haram ho ya ke diya som ka. It is the splendor of his beauty that illuminates everything, be it the flame in Kaaba or the lamp in the temple of Somnath. Today, in fact, it is precisely this fear of losing one's religious identity, one's faith and belief system that has created a fear psychosis among communities which leads to further mutual suspicion, dislike, hatred, and eventually to violence. We have got to get rid of this misperception, misunderstanding, and fear if we need to build a modern nation around the plurality of our culture by channelizing this diversity into greater national good by creating unity through diversity. And there is no better way of doing this than to remind ourselves of a past in which sharing social norms and values was not at the expense of one's faith. Swami Vivekananda looked upon all religions as different means provided for imperfect mankind to reach completeness. He firmly held the Christian is not to become a Hindu or Buddhist, nor a Hindu or a Buddhist to become a Christian, but each must assimilate the spirit of others and yet preserve his individuality and grow according to his own law of growth. He propounded the virtue of tranquility, patience and hope that would make for the homogeneity of the world along 
with the riches of its variety. Each pen, he said, shall then sparkle like a flame in a lamp in a windless place that does not flicker. Today's psychological and physical ghettos which we have erected between communities and people stand as blatant distortions and shameless lies in the face of this aspect this of shared experience. We need to remove this cancer from our society by learning from our history that tolerance was not merely meant to be an uneasy coexistence, but rather a shared, sympathetic, well-understood experience and a conscious decision to enjoy life together. Adversarial relationships should be replaced by mutual understanding in which men would learn to live in peace and harmony, for otherwise, in the event of intolerance, as we know of human nature, aggression and violence rather than peace is likely to be the cause. Societies would get splintered, countries would get divided. The shared experience of life among communities had actually pervaded all walks of life, while a common man's day-to-day -day life was defined broadly in the terms which we have mentioned above. Other sections of society, too, had similar experiences. We know that there were many able Hindus who served in high administrative positions for even religious-inclined Muslim rulers and vice versa. There were also Muslim scholars who studied Hindu philosophy and Hindu men of high learning who acquired deep knowledge of Islamic culture and religion. It was this milieu of close interaction and amiability going much beyond mere acceptance of each other's existence as fate accompli, which defined relations between not only Hindus and Muslims, but among the other Indian communities. Today, in a country that remains diverse and differentiated, and in the midst of economic, social, political, and international turbulence, we would do well to remind ourselves of this history. Now, it may be objected that ordinary men and women in their daily lives do not have time or not well-informed enough to engage in this three-part exercise of tolerance. This is a valid objection. Our daily lives demand much from us in India. However, while we cannot all be expected to undertake this kind of rigorous analysis required of true tolerance, this is not the case for our leaders, our intellectuals, our artists, or educated and professional classes. I do feel that we have been let down by these vital sections of our society, and I urge that there is still time for them to own up their shortcomings and stand up to meet the challenges of intolerance. They have an obligation towards the younger generation. It should not be let down like a lost generation. It is the responsibility of these classes to think on how to handle some of our contemporary differences where intolerances surface all too often. Peace dwells in harmony flourishes where compassion, tolerance, sensitivity, and understanding exist. The vision of the good society thus involves not the repetition of dogma or observance of ceremonies, but the transformation of one's nature. We must behold the truth and become what we behold. There is in human nature a desire for beauty, for moral aspirations, 
the regard of fellow human being, reverence for something greater than oneself in the universe, and so on. These impulses give warmth and colour to life's fabric. Its richness, fullness and diversity. We need to see this as our true nature and to control our lower passions. All of our philosophers and statesmen have emphasised that we are in a nightmare world because we do not realise sufficiently that good life consists in making of the self, in the refashioning of our nature and not in the repetition of hymns and observance of ceremonies. The individual is a self-making process. Man is not pinned down like a stone. Man has a great ability to change the quality of his life by the way he thinks, by the way he lives. A strict discipline which binds our nature is the demand of our age. Through tolerance, India has always been able to provide to its sons of different faiths unity, togetherness and a life of love and peace. Great teachers have shown us how this can be done. It is for our intellectuals, artists, educated and professional classes to weave this noble vision into our everyday and collective life. The creativity of the world of diversity and peaceful coexistence can be the basis of unparalleled human progress. In India, this task has to be approached not merely as a political challenge, but also as a spiritual pilgrimage. All of history was a preparation for this great act of dedication and fulfilment, evolving a system of peace based on shared goals and a common vision. Throughout the ages, endless inundations of men of diverse creeds Cultures and races have come to this land from distant regions and different climes. India has welcomed them all. They have met and gathered, given and taken, and got mingled and merged. India's tradition has thus been epitomized in the following noble lines of Rabindranath Tagore. None shall be turned away from the shores of this vast sea of humanity that is my India. India has never been exclusive, but inclusive. Its culture is based in accepting and enlightening the self as it would grow with contacts with the best from outside. Indeed, India has sent out to the world a message of goodwill, again enshrined and proclaimed in one of Rabindranath Tagore's verses, which reads as follows. Day and night, thy voice goes out from den to den, calling Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs and Jains. Round thy throne assemble Parsis, Muslims and Christians. Offerings are brought to thy shrine by the East and the West to be woven in the garland of life. Thou bringest the hearts of all peoples into harmony of one's life. Thou dispenser of India's destiny, victory, victory, victory to thee. It is thus that the genius of India has been able to find unity in diversity. By assimilating the best of all creeds and cultures, we have to rededicate ourselves to this if we have to keep India of Sardar's making strong and united. Now permit me to talk of material well-being as the second element of a good society. Material well-being of people at large is another important element in men's quest for a good society. 
It is true that man does not live by bread alone, but he cannot live without bread either. Material well-being is a precondition for security and peace and even progress. If the mere avoidance of conflict becomes an overriding objective, life will be at the mercy of the ruthless and bullies. Every religion and philosophical system acknowledges material well-being as a base for any worthwhile human activity, practical or philosophical. It is wrong notion altogether for people to argue that we in India were lost in metaphysical reveries and regarded secular and material aspects of life to be inconsequential. Truth is that the secular and material aspects of life received as much attention as any other. And even those who were regarded as spiritually minded were not oblivious of the needs of ordinary human beings. After attaining enlightenment, the Buddha did not retire into solitude. He came out healing the sick and helping the poor and aging. Similarly, when Swami Vivekananda thought he should lose himself in the delights of the inner spiritual life and not get involved in matters of the world, Ramakrishna Paranhansa chided him, shame on you. Why are you trying so much to seek your own personal salvation instead of first rescuing others who were suffering poverty, deprivation, and hunger? That made him think, and he felt pangs of all humanity in himself. He said, how can I content myself with my own salvation? It's my duty to look after others and rescue them from suffering. The Upanishad says, say, after the achievements of wisdom, let me have wealth. Wealth and property in the hands of the enlightened are a source of blessing. Wealth and prosperity in the hands of unenlightened are a curse. Some of us can perhaps live like ascetics and saints, but few have their discipline. The rest of us need three square meals a day, a decent shelter, amenities such as electricity, fresh water, sanitation, access to affordable transportation, good education and books, radio and television, which open us up to the world around. These nourish our bodies, minds and spirits. For that, poverty must be fought, disease and illiteracy removed, and everyone must be given a chance to grow better, feel no doubt, think clearly and act right. Humans must free themselves from the iron laws of necessity. It is for nothing that in India, Saraswati, the goddess of learning, and Lakshmi, the goddess of wealth, are both equally revered and worshipped. Here I must refer to a common misperception about the process of material and scientific modernization. Though not all the votaries of this process, but certainly some sections do equate modernization with westernization in terms of cultural norms. This is a big mistake. It repels those people who are religiously inclined or deeply conscious of their own cultures from exploring the benefits of this process. Even in terms of plain reality, this equation is incorrect. Surely, it is very much possible, and indeed this is how it should be, to benefit from the fruits of modernization without submerging our cultural identity in it. 
we must be ready to explore ways to genuine accommodation of modernization with our culture and moral principles. The experience of some Asian societies. <laughs> <laughs>